0: Welcome to Changing Places, the podcast that believes places are powerful agents of positive social transformation. Each episode, Dean Keith Diaz Moore from the University of Utah's College of Architecture
1: and Planning will take you behind the teaching, research, and practice at the leading edge of innovation occurring in our college. Through informal conversations, you will learn
0: the emerging issues, why you should care, and what you can do about them to change our world for the better.
1: Welcome to Changing Places, a periodic podcast focused on how the places we create are agents for transformative social change. I am your host, Keith Diaz-Moore. Today we're joined by Professor of Architecture Martha Bradley from the University of Utah. Dr. Bradley is an expert in the area of history and cultural landscape, particularly of the American West. She is the past vice chair of the Utah State Board of History, a former chair of what is now Preservation Utah, a fellow of the Utah State Historical Society, and a recipient of the University of Utah's highest honor, the Rosenblatt Prize for Excellence. Just recently, Marty stepped down as Senior Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs and the Dean of Undergraduate Studies at the U after having served in administration for the past 19 years. Today, we're going to discuss her newest book, An Architectural Travel Guide to Utah, published by the University of Utah Press. Welcome, Marty. Thank you, Keith. It's great to have you here. So anyone reading the preface to this book uh, would immediately recognize that this is really a work of passion for you. So let me ask, why this book and why is this particular project so deeply meaningful to you?
2: So for the past 30 years, I've been traveling my way through Utah. Exploring small towns and our urban environments. Uh, I was thinking about it this morning that uh, one of the one of the projects that really brought me into Utah in a really different way was when the Utah State Centennial Project asked a number of historians to write county histories, and I was involved in the writing of King County's history, Beaver, and Sam, uh, Summit. Mm-hmm. And th- what that did is it really forced me and it became a delight to not only travel to those parts of the state, and if you think of it, it's north, south, south and, and central Utah,
0: mm-hmm. but to
2: get to know them inside and out. Um, that was back in the days when all of our newspapers were still hard copies and so <laughs> I I wasn't able to read their local newspapers online, but I had to sit for hours and hours in their county libraries. And again, it was just a delight. But my own exploration of this place has just been so inspiring to me. And I actually get joy out of spending eight, ten hours in a car and just driving from small town to another and discovering um, really beautiful, remarkable examples of of Utah's architecture.
1: That's wonderful, and it comes through in the pages for sure. The book provides a wonderful overview of Utah's architectural history. You know, from the ancestral Pueblo through the arrival of European settlers from the eastern U.S., including the Latter Day Saints, the impact of federal policy uh, on the landscape in Utah. First, with Utah becoming the meeting place of the, of the Transcontinental Railroad, and that bringing Chinese immigrants. And then seven decades later, with the New Deal and World War II, bringing Japanese Americans, sadly, via internment camps. And then, of course, through the impact of the 2002 Olympics. In fact, you assert that the story of the Utah cultural landscape is actually one of migrations. What built landscapes come to mind that reflect this unfolding narrative?
2: I think the theme of migration helps us remember the sort of layered nature of human occupation of the Great Basin, Utah Territory, or as it was described on one of my favorite early maps from the 1700s, the land as yet unknown. (laughs) Anciently, it's estimated that 11,000 men and women made their way down to the Great Basin from the Bering Straits, leaving evidence of their lives in their wakes. Mm-hmm. And H and Puebloans and Sazi and Fremont people not only traversed the land but built homes and granaries and sacred space and kivas. And to me, most impressively, homes and granaries that hug the sides of the Red Rock Buttes of southwestern Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I think if we describe these people as primitive, we really miss. The mark for they were resourceful and innovative and resilient and determined. Um, I personally cannot stand in the presence of a structure like the House of Fire in the Cedar Mesa without leaving with profound respect for their inventive use of a natural form, and in that case, the rock face, for shelter, for part of a structure, and for a place that would endure past a single season. And this was actually a tremendous, tremendously big deal. And in the 17th and 18th, 19th centuries, Utah was always occupied by Native persons. The Shoshone, the Paiute, the Goshu, the Youth, the Navajo, among others, who sometimes moved from place to place, and other times set down roots and built more per- permanent shelters. Mm-hmm. But that movement, which is at the heart of migrations, was always a part of their reality And again, it's really exciting because we can see traces of their lives along riverbanks in the shadow of a canyon wall or on a desert floor. When white settlers entered the scene with another wave of migration, the story becomes one of conflict, of contest, and sometimes violence, Mm -hmm. because in each of these cases, the new migrants were trying to take something away from someone else. And all the treaties and land deals and divine sanctions didn't change that reality. Um, The movement of white settlers through Utah Territory was coordinated in Salt Lake City by Brigham Young, Mm -hmm. who saw this as satisfying what he considered to be a divine directive, that the white settlers, the Mormon settlers, would help the desert blossom like the rose. And honestly, it, to me, it doesn't seem like it even mattered who was in the way. <laughs> when the Latter-day Saint formed treaties or forged relations with the Native Americans, it was always to avoid violence, not to respect their ancient claim on the land or do what was for fair or right, but to protect the vulnerable settlers from angry attacks. Um, I could talk about this all day, but one part of Salt Lake City's history speaks to migrations as well. And that is the area of the west side that we call the gateway. Yes. I love the image of immigrants or workers coming to either the Rio Grande or the uh, Union Pacific railroad depots and entering Solid City. I, I see it as a, a grand threshold to this new life. Mm-hmm. And the areas around both of those uh, railroad depots became ethnic neighborhoods. For example, in the area around the Rio Grande is what we we have called Greek towns. And uh, perhaps the most most poignant monument of that moment in time is the Holy Trinity Church, which I think speaks volumes about the ethnic composition of the neighborhood. Uh, but at, but in the early nineteen uh, early nineteen hundreds, there would have been cafenas and Greek grocery stores and boarding houses. And you would have known that it had a different character. that different people from the rest of the city lived in that neighborhood. A uh, Neighborhood nearby became known as Japantown,
0: mm-hmm. which was
2: a place that many of the Japanese who had lived through internment came to Salt Lake to be relocated. And many of them made their homes in Salt Lake and for a period of time in a couple of blocks just west of the Salt Palace. They, again, clustered together for religious activities, for social activities, restaurants, a high-rise apartment building house, many of them that were just located for a number of years before they started moving to other parts of of the city.
1: That is um, fascinating. You're painting a fascinating um, uh, picture. And I I think it leads into uh, the next question I wanted to ask. Because through it all, the, the book makes clear that, that architectural uh, expressions or architectural change parallel cultural change and that both continuously negotiate the ecological fragility that we find here in Utah's landscape, including you know, its mountains and, uh, and our water scarcity. <laughs> so you state that the natural landscape is always present in the story of Utah's architecture. And I'm just wondering, what buildings or landscapes do you feel convey this sense of of care for this natural landscape?
2: Well, and it might not even be care, but dependence on the natural landscape or Mm -hmm. this sort of synergy between the two. Sure. I like to imagine an aerial photo of the state of Utah that gave you a sense of settlements from the very northern edge of the state down to the south. And what you would see is that towns were primarily located near the foothills of the mountain range. They kind of clung to the foothills as a way of having more ready access to water. And as they moved out from the foothills, they had to build systems of irrigation ditches. So they were always really um, dependent on the the mountains, what they could get in terms of resources from the mountains, in mm-hmm. terms of wood or in terms of water. So, that aerial photograph would really give you a good sense of that.
1: Interesting. Another
2: thing I love about um, 19th century Utah architecture are those homes that are built out of adobe bricks or uh, of or stone. Yes. Because they speak in really specific ways about the land itself about the color of the dirt, the colors and textures of the rocks that they could quarry in the mountains nearby. And throughout the state, the the color of rock, for example, changes. In Willard, the rock is this really dark, black, lava rock. And in central Utah, in Sampey County, the rock rock is this really beautiful, uh, cream-colored, oolite limestone. In beavers, the rock is sometimes black and sometimes pink. So it really shows us this relationship, and again, this dependence on the natural landscape itself. When you think about adobe bricks, uh, the color you can imagine what the color of an adobe brick from St. George would be because if you've ever been there, you can it's really hard to get the red color of the dirt out of your white socks, right. So the bricks have this the same essential color as the red rocks that surround those that that region, and then in other parts of the the state, it might have been more clay and and or more beige. So really distinctive colors because those materials were made with with what they found on the earth itself.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, uh, again, it, it's an amazing um, portrait that you're you're painting the diversity that happens in Utah in response to our natural landscape. Well, what I found wonderful about the book is that it captures this never-ending story uh, of the cultural landscape we now call Utah, and it us- utilizes selected pieces of architecture over time as, as these fully developed characters. In fact, uh, you know, reading through it, I, I thought one could make parallels between a, a playbill, <laughs> like we get at a, thea- a theatrical performance, And the structure of the book is it provides a very quick synopsis and then highlights biosketches, if you will, of illustrative buildings and does so by region in the state. And yet the main storyline is really about what happens to and with those characters. What to you are the main takeaways of this built landscape?
2: I'm so excited about this book. and, And I love this question, Keith, because I think you really capture the spirit of it. It's a lens for looking at Utah history. You know, you could look at Utah's history as a series of wars or colonization efforts. Mm-hmm. But I prefer to use the built landscape as a lens for imagining the lives of people from a different time. I went to dinner the other night with Rent, who told me she doesn't like old buildings. Yes. <laughs> and I sort of squirmed. I love a magnificent piece of architecture regardless of the generation but I am moved and inspired and even swept away by the simple hall parlor house of the 19th century.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Some of my favorites in Utah are built out of stone, others out of adobe. There's a really awesome example down in Sanpete County where it's an adobe building, but to make it look a little more fancy, they tacked up tar paper and then inscribed it so it looked like it was cut stone. When I was a student, uh, an undergraduate, my final semester was what was called the New England Experience. It was this kind of experimental thing. Hmm. And it was a semester-long experiential learning course that included two English professors and Larry Gerlach, who was my history professor. And we spent part of the time in the classroom at, in Utah and the rest in New England. And there, Gerlach supported me in in my my project, which was visiting the earliest extant buildings in New England. And I remember distinctly, and here it's some five decades later, dunking through the door frame of the John Whipple House and how low the whitewashed ceilings were, hmm. how the thick walls created an interior that felt like a really warm and comforting cave. Mm-hmm. That house triggered my imagination and made me want to know everything I could about the colonials how they lived, how they loved, and families, and what they hoped for.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I have that same sort of sensation every time I enter a simple 19th century meeting house or granary or cooperative or house. They stimulate my imagination, and they help me understand more about the human experience, and I always want to know more. Our preoccupation with privacy or private space in the 21st century Mm -hmm. just wouldn't have worked in the hall parlor house. I always imagine, how did a plural family live in such space or accommodate the demands of that unusual marriage pattern? Right. The efforts of white settlers in the late 19th century to settle in the harsh landscapes of Washington County, San Juan County, mm-hmm. remind me of the ancient inhabitants and how they similarly used natural forms for shade, for sustenance, for security. And even the use of adobe, adobe or roughly incised stones, the ancients did that, and the 19th century white settlers did it all over again.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Even the use of mud is very similar and very much again of the earth.
1: That's just fascinating. You're, you're getting so many thoughts to go through my head right now. Um, <laughs> in in the book. Uh, I, I do want to hit this point. Uh, you offer gracious appreciation to a whole bunch of people, but particularly to the work of former colleagues uh, such as Peter Goss and Tom Carter, two professors emeriti from the College of Architecture and Planning. And would you mind sharing what intellectual contribution you feel they made in shaping your understanding of Utah architecture?
2: Absolutely. When Peter first came to Utah, he had just completed a comparative arts PhD at Ohio university where he combined his interests of photography and architecture in a 39 year career at the university of utah he often pursued interdisciplinary projects mm-hmm. for example when he had a fulbright in romania he studied vernacular architecture there when he was in europe he re-photographed Gaudi's uh sagrada familia
1: oh interesting and
2: The project I was really fascinated with was he did photo documentation of sheep shearing sheds in the Intermountain West. Hmm. Peter explored small communities outside his house in Salt Lake City and has been honored with exhibitions and awards for his photo documentary work. When he first arrived as a new assistant professor, Peter began his systematic exploration of the state and its architecture. And his path-breaking article appeared in the Utah Historical Quarterly in 1976, and it laid out the key themes that he saw and highlighted key building trends or buildings, and really laid the groundwork for all of our work that has played out since. Above all, Peter Goss is curious. He's (laughs) curious about humanity and the evidence of human life and how we live together on the land. Tom Carter also had a decades-long love affair with the Utah landscape and with a view that included much of the Mountain West. His involvement in the vernacular architecture forum Mm -hmm. embedded his work and his sensibilities in the national movement to understand architecture made by common men and women. Tom's long-anticipated volume, which is called Building Zion, The Material World of Mormon Settlement, was worth the wait. The result of a lifetime of thoughtful analysis, drawing, study, reflection, and interpretation, this important book makes really a unique contribution to both Mormon studies and the study of vernacular architecture. There's no other book like Building Zion that uses the cultural landscape and material culture as a lens through which one might interpret the Mormon experience. And in this case, Tom focuses on Manti, uh, down in Sanpete County. The book's central thesis and interpretive framework talks about two different themes that he saw in in this cultural landscape, and he called it the temple and the house. From the temple came what he called otherness that made the Mormons distinctive and kind of announced their religious identity to the rest of the world. And from houses came what he called orthodoxy, that allowed them to fit rather seamlessly into mainstream American culture. But he does this really interesting theoretical study of the duality of the sacred and profane and how it played out in the conceptualization of space, uh, the construction of space, and how the people who lived in San Pete Valley practiced those spaces which they shared. His book, in my mind, is a spectacular contribution to the field.
1: Absolutely. A brilliant addition. So last question. I can't believe we're out of, uh, almost out of time here, but last question. As you know, our college is the first architecture and planning college in the nation to espouse, we shorthand an ethic of care to underlie our professional education. I think it certainly comes through in your, in your voice today, but why do you care and why do you think others should care about the cultural and built landscape in Utah?
0: So
2: as I answer this question, I want to reference our college mission, where the ethic of care is elaborated on. So for example, it says, we also believe that the particularity of this place, ecologically and culturally, provides both meaningful challenges and lessons to catalyze innovation. I've been so inspired by our college's commitment to an ethic of care. And I believe this applies to both the natural environment and the built environment. I was driving down State Street the other day with a Lyft driver, and she said, oh, I'm so glad they're getting rid of all those radio buildings. And I thought, oh, surely there is a better way than just raising it down to the ground so we can build buildings that, in my mind, are starting to look an awfully lot like each other. Uh, in the mission, it says that we hope new designers can, quote, inform the creation of purposeful, aesthetically elegant interventions that foster ecological, social, and economic resilience, and further health and well-being for all, especially those for whom design makes the greatest difference, end quote. So if you think about, we can choose to tear down every building that is older than 50 years, or we can choose to do interesting, respectful interventions. For too long, we've built built anticipating obsolescence. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, Keith, or if this was before your time, but there was a pretty landmark building on the same block as the Leonardo called the Metropolitan Hall of Justice. And that modern formalist building lasted for only 48 years before we got sick of its floating panels and expansive windows. I think as we say in our college mission, we have, quote, a responsibility to past, present, and future generations for the sustainability of our creative expressions that reallocate natural resources.
0: Mm-hmm. And then finally,
2: respect. a Respect for the health and culture of all places. And I think it's our responsibility, again, as our mission statement says, challenge the CAP family to be proactive stewards of the built environment. And take leadership in promoting the resilience of all segments of our communities and the environments in which they reside.
1: So thank you, Keith. <laughs> well, thank you, Marty, for joining us today. I, I can't believe we're at the end. We only scratched the surface. This is such a rich, rich topic. <laughs> we're going to have to have you back if we can. Our guest today has been Dr. Martha Bradley, who is a professor in the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah. If you found this work interesting, you can find out more by visiting the college website at www.cap.utah.edu. I would like to end by thanking our listeners for taking the time to join us and for spreading the word using the hashtag Changing Places. On behalf of the Changing Places podcast, hosted by the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah, I am Dean Keith Diaz Moore. Take care, everyone.